0: Chapter 2 At 23 o'clock that night, the Syrian priest went out to watch for the coming of the messenger from Tiberias. Nearly two hours previously, he had heard the cry of the Russian volor that plied from Damascus to Tiberius and Tiberius to Jerusalem, and even as it was, the messenger was a little late. These were very primitive arrangements, but Palestine was out of the world, a slip of useless country and it was necessary for a man to ride from Tiberius to Nazareth each night with papers from Cardinal Corcoran to the Pope and to return with correspondence. It was a dangerous task, and the members of the new order who surrounded the Cardinal undertook it by turns. In this manner, all matters for which the Pope's personal attention was required and which were too long and not too urgent could be dealt with at leisure by him, and an answer returned within twenty-four hours. It was a brilliant moonlit night. The great golden shield was riding high above Tabor, "'shedding its strange metallic light down the long slopes "'and over the moor-like country that rose up from before the house door, "'casting two heavy black shadows that seemed far more concrete and solid "'than the brilliant pale surfaces of the rock slabs, "'or even than the diamond flashes from the quartz and crystal "'that here and there sparkled up the stony pathway. "'Compared with this clear splendor, "'the yellow light from the shuttered house seemed a hot and tawdry thing, "'and the priest, leaning against the doorpost, "'his eyes alone alight in his dark face, sank down at last with a kind of eastern sensuousness to bathe himself in the glory and to spread his lean, brown hands out to it. This was a very simple man, in faith as well as in life. For him there were neither the ecstasies nor the desolations of his master. It was an immense and solemn joy to him to live here at the spot of God's incarnation and in attendance upon his vicar. As regarded the movements of the world, he observed them as a man in a ship watches the heaving of the waves far beneath. Of course the world was restless, he half-perceived, for, as the Latin doctor had said, all hearts were restless until they found their rest in God. Quare firmuerent gentes, adversus dominum et adversus Christum As to the end, he was not greatly concerned. It might well be that the ship would be overwhelmed, but the moment of the catastrophe would be the end of all things earthly. The gates of hell shall not prevail. When Rome falls, the world falls, and when the world falls, Christ is manifest in power. For himself he imagined that the end was not far away. When he had named Megiddo this afternoon, it had been in his mind. To him it seemed natural that, at the consummation of all things, Christ's vicar should dwell at Nazareth, where his king had come on earth, and that the Armageddon of the divine John should be within sight of the scene where Christ had first taken his earthly scepter and should take it again. After all, it would not be the first battle that Megiddo had seen. Israel and Amalek had met here, Israel and Assyria, Sesostris had ridden here and Sennacherib. Christian and Turk had contended here, like Michael and Satan, over the place where God's body had lain. As to the exact method of the end, he had no clear views. It would be a battle of some kind, and what field could be found more evidently designed for that than this huge, flat, circular plain of Esdralon, twenty miles across, sufficient to hold all the armies of the earth in its embrace? To his view once more, ignorant as he was of present statistics, the world was divided into two large sections, Christians and heathens, and he supposed them very much of a size. Something would happen. Troops would land at Caifa. They would stream southwards from Tiberias, Damascus and remote Asia, northwards from Jerusalem, Egypt and Africa, eastwards from Europe, westwards from Asia again in the far-off Americas. And surely the time could not be far away, for here was Christ's vicar. And as he himself had said in his Gospel of the Advent, Ubi cumque fuerit corpus, ili et aquile. Of more subtle interpretations of prophecy, he had no knowledge. For him, words were things, not merely labels upon ideas. What Christ and St. Paul and St. John had said, these things were so. He had escaped, owing chiefly to his isolation from the world, that vast expansion of richly in ideas that during the last century had been responsible for the desertion by so many of any intelligible creed. For others, this had been the supreme struggle the difficulty of decision between the facts that words were not things, and yet that the things they represented were in themselves objective. But to this man, sitting now in the moonlight, listening to the far-off tap of hoofs over the hill as the messenger came up from Cana, faith was as simple as an exact science. Here Gabriel had descended on wide-feathered wings from the throne of God set far beyond the stars. The Holy Ghost had breathed in a beam of ineffable light. The word had become flesh as Mary folded her arms and bowed her head to the decree of the Eternal. And here once more, he thought, though it was no more than a guess, yet he thought that already the running of chariot wheels was audible, the tumult of the hosts of God gathering about the camp of the saints. He thought that already beyond the bars of the dark Gabriel set to his lips the trumpet of doom and heaven was astir. He might be wrong at this time, as others had been wrong at other times, but neither he nor they could be wrong forever. There must some day be an end to the patience of God, even though that patience sprang from the eternity of his nature. He stood up, as down the pale moonlit path a hundred yards away came a pale figure of one who rode with a leather bag strapped to his girdle. It would be about three o'clock in the morning that the priest awoke in his little mud walled room next to that of the Holy Fathers and heard a footstep coming up the stairs. Last evening he had left his master as usual, beginning to open the pile of letters arrived from Cardinal Corcoran, and himself had gone straight to his bed and slept. He lay now a moment or two, still drowsy, listening to the pad of feet, and an instant later sat up abruptly for a deliberate tap had sounded on the door. Again it came. He sprang out of bed in his long night tunic, drew it up hastily in his girdle, went to the door and opened it. The Pope was standing there, with a little lamp in one hand, for the dawn had scarcely yet begun, and a paper in the other. I beg your pardon, Father, but there is a message I must have sent at once to his eminence. Together they went out through the Pope's room. The priest, still half blind with sleep, passed up the stairs and emerged into the clear cold air of the upper roof. The Pope blew out his lamp and set it on the parapet. You will be cold, Father. Fetch your cloak. And you, holiness? The other made a little gesture of denial and went across to the tiny temporary shed where the wireless telegraphic instrument stood. Fetch your cloak, Father, he said again over his shoulder. I will ring up, meanwhile. When the priest came back three minutes later, in his slippers and cloak, carrying another cloak also for his master, the Pope was still seated at the table. He did not even move his head as the other came up but once more pressed on the lever that, communicating with the twelve-foot pole that rose through the penthouse overhead, shot out the quivering energy through the eighty miles of glimmering air that lay between Nazareth and Damascus. This simple priest had scarcely even by now become accustomed to this extraordinary device invented a century ago, and perfected through all those years to this precise exactness, that device by which, with the help of a stick, a bundle of wires, and a box of wheels, something, at last, established to be at the root of all matter, if not at the very root of physical life, spoke across the spaces of the world to a tiny receiver tuned by a hair's breadth to the vibration with which it was set in relations. The air was surprisingly cold, considering the heat that had preceded and would follow it, and the priest shivered a little as he stood clear of the roof and stared, now at the motionless figure in the chair before him, now at the vast vault of the sky passing, even as he looked, from a cold, colorless luminosity to a tender tint of yellow, as far away beyond Tabor and Moab the dawn began to deepen. From the village half a mile away arose the crowing of a cock, thin and brazen as a trumpet. A dog barked once and was silent again, and then on a sudden a single stroke upon a bell hung in the roof recalled him in an instant and told him that his work was to begin. The Pope pressed the lever again at the sound, twice, and then after a pause once more, waited a moment for an answer, and then when it came, rose and signed to the priest to take his place. The Syrian sat down, handing the extra cloak to his master and waited until the other had settled himself in a chair set in such a position at the side of the table that the face of each was visible to the other. Then he waited, with his brown fingers poised above the row of keys, looking at the other's face as he arranged himself to speak. That face, he thought, looking out from the hood, seemed paler than ever in this cold light of dawn. The black arched eyebrows accentuated this, and even the steady lips, preparing to speak, seemed white and bloodless. He had his paper in his hand, and his eyes were fixed upon this. "'Make sure it is the cardinal,' he said abruptly. The priest tapped off an inquiry and, with moving lips, read off the printed message, as like magic it precipitated itself onto the tall white sheet of paper that faced him. "'It is his eminence, Holiness,' he said softly. "'He is alone at the instrument.' "'Very well. Now, then begin. "'We have received your eminence's letter and have noted the news. "'It should have been forwarded by telegraphy. Why was that not done?' The voice paused, and the priest who snapped off the message, more quickly than a man could write it, read aloud the answer. I did not understand that it was urgent. I thought it was but one more assault. I had intended to communicate more so soon as I heard more. Of course it was urgent, came the voice again in the deliberate intonation that was used between these two in the case of messages for transmission. Remember that all news of this kind is always urgent. I will remember, read the priest. I regret my mistake. You tell us, went on the Pope, his eyes still downcast on the paper, that this measure is decided upon. You name only three authorities. Give me now all the authorities you have, if you have more. There was a moment's pause. Then the priest began to read off the names. Besides the three cardinals whose name I sent, the archbishops of Tibet, Cairo, Calcutta, and Sydney have all asked if the news was true, and for directions if it is true. "'besides others whose names I can communicate "'if I may leave the table for a moment.' "'Do so,' said the Pope. "'Again there was a pause. "'Then once more the names began. "'The bishops of Bucharest, "'the Marquesas Islands, and Newfoundland, "'the Franciscans in Japan, "'the crutched friars in Morocco, "'the archbishops of Manitoba and Portland, "'and the cardinal archbishop of Peking. "'I have dispatched two members of Christ crucified to England.' Tell us where the news first arrived, and how. I was called up to the instrument yesterday evening at about twenty o'clock. The Archbishop of Sydney was asking, through our station at Bombay, whether the news was true. I replied I had heard nothing of it. Within ten minutes, four more inquiries had come to the same effect, and three minutes later Cardinal Ruspoli sent the positive news from Turin. This was accompanied by a similar message from Father Petrovsky in Moscow. Then, stop. Why did not Cardinal Dogorovsky communicate it? He did communicate it three hours later. Why not at once? His eminence had not heard it. Find out at what hour the news reached Moscow. Not now, but within the day. I will. Go on, then. Cardinal Malpas communicated it within five minutes of Cardinal Ruspoli, and the rest of the inquiries arrived before midnight. China reported it at 23. Then when do you suppose the news was made public? It was decided first at the secret London conference yesterday at about 16 o'clock by our time. The plenipotentiaries appeared to have signed it at that hour. After that, it was communicated to the world. It was published here half an hour past midnight. Then Felsenberg was in London? I am not yet sure. Cardinal Malpass tells me that Felsenberg gave his provisional consent on the previous day. Very good. That is all you know, then? I was called up an hour ago by Cardinal Ruspoli again. He tells me that he fears a riot in Florence. It will be the first of many revolutions, he says. Does he ask for anything? Only for directions. Tell him that we send him the apostolic benediction and will forward directions within the course of two hours. Select twelve members of the order for immediate service. I will. Communicate that message also as soon as we have finished to all the Sacred College and bid them communicate it with all discretion to all metropolitans and bishops, that priests and people may know that we bear them in our heart. I will, holiness. Tell them, finally, that we had foreseen this long ago, that we commend them to the Eternal Father without whose providence no sparrow falls to the ground. Bid them be quiet and confident, to do nothing save confess their faith when they are questioned. All other directions shall be issued to their pastors immediately. I will, holiness. There was again a pause. The Pope had been speaking with the utmost tranquility as one in a dream. His eyes were downcast upon the paper, his whole body as motionless as an image. Yet to the priest who listened, dispatching the Latin messages, and reading aloud the replies, it seemed, although so little intelligible news had reached him, as if something very strange and great was impending. There was the sense of a peculiar strain in the air, and although he drew no deductions from the fact that apparently the whole Catholic world was in frantic communication with Damascus, yet he remembered his meditations of the evening before— as he had waited for the messenger. It seemed as if the powers of this world were contemplating one more step. With its nature, he was not greatly concerned. The Pope spoke again in his natural voice. Father, he said, what I am about to say now is as if I had told it in confession. You understand? Very well, now begin. Then again, the intonation began. Eminence, we shall say Mass of the Holy Ghost in one hour from now. At the end of that time, you will cause that all the sacred college shall be in touch with yourself and waiting for our commands. This new decision is unlike any that have preceded it. Surely you understand that now. Two or three plans are in our mind, yet we are not sure yet which it is that our Lord intends. After Mass we shall communicate to you that which he shall show us to be according to his will. We beg of you to say Mass also, immediately, for our intention. Whatever must be done must be done quickly. The matter of Cardinal Dolgorovsky you may leave until later, but we wish to hear the result of your inquiries, especially in London before midday, Benedicate omnipotens Deus Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen, murmured the priest, reading it from the sheet. The little chapel in the house below was scarcely more dignified than the other rooms. Of ornaments, except those absolutely essential to liturgy and devotion, there were none. In the plaster of the walls were indented in slight relief the fourteen stations of the cross. A small stone image of the Mother of God stood in a corner, with an ironwork candlestick before it, and on the solid uncarved stone altar, raised on a stone step, stood six more iron candlesticks and an iron crucifix. A tabernacle, also of iron, shrouded by linen curtains, stood beneath the cross. A small stone slab projecting from the wall served as a credence. There was but one window, and this looked into the court, so that the eyes of strangers might not penetrate. It seemed to the Syrian priest as he went about his business, laying out the vestments in the little sacristy that opened out at one side of the altar, preparing the cruets and stripping the covering from the altar cloth, that even that slight work was wearying, there seemed a certain oppression in the air. As to how far that was the result of his broken rest, he did not know, but he feared that it was one more of those Scirocco days that threatened. That yellowish tinge of dawn had not passed with the sun rising. Even now, as he went noiselessly on his bare feet between the predella and the predieu where the silent white figure was still motionless, he caught now and again, above the roof, across the tiny court, a glimpse of that faint sand-tinged sky that was the promise of heat and heaviness. He finished at last, lighted the candles, genuflected, and stood with bowed head waiting for the Holy Father to rise from his knees. A servant's footsteps sounded in the court, coming across to hear Mass, and simultaneously the Pope rose and went towards the sacristy, where the red vestments of God who came by fire were laid ready for the sacrifice. Sylvester's bearing at Mass was singularly unostentatious. He moved as swiftly as any young priest. His voice was quite even and quite low, and his pace neither rapid nor pompous. According to tradition, he occupied half an hour ab amiktu ad amictum and even in the tiny empty chapel, he observed to keep his eyes always downcast. And yet this Syrian never served his mass without a thrill of something resembling fear. It was not only his knowledge of the awful dignity of this simple celebrant, but, although he could not have expressed it so, there was an aroma of an emotion about the vestmented figure that affected him almost physically, an entire absence of self-consciousness, and in its place the consciousness of some other presence. A perfection of manner, even in the smallest details, that could only arise from absolute recollection. Even in Rome, in the old days, it had been one of the sights of Rome to see Father Frankly say Mass. Seminary students on the eve of ordination were sent to that site to learn the perfect manner and method. Today, all was as usual, but at the communion, the priest looked up suddenly at the moment when the host had been consumed, with a half impression that either a sound or a gesture had invited it. And as he looked, his heart began to beat thick and convulsive at the base of his throat. Yet to the outward eyes, there was nothing unusual. The figure stood there with bowed head, the chin resting on the tips of the long fingers, the body absolutely upright, and standing with that curious light poise as if no weight rested upon the feet. But to the inner sense, something was apparent. The Syrian could not in the least formulate it to himself. But afterwards, he reflected that he had stared expecting some visible or audible manifestation to take place it was an impression that might be described under the terms of either light or sound. At any instant, that delicate, vivid force, that to the eyes of the soul burned beneath the red chasuble and the white alb, might have suddenly welled outwards under the appearance of a gush of radiant light, rendering luminous not only the clear brown flesh seen beneath the white hair, but the very texture of the coarse, dead, stained stuffs that swathed the rest of the body. Or it might have shown itself in the strain of a long cord on strings or wind, as if the mystical union of the dedicated soul with the ineffable Godhead and humanity of Jesus Christ generated such a sound as ceaselessly flows out with the river of life from beneath the throne of the Lamb. Or yet once more it might have declared itself under the guise of a perfume, the very essence of distilled sweetness, such a scent as that which, streaming out through the gross tabernacle of a saint's body, is to those who observe it as the breath of heavenly roses. The moments passed in that hush of purity and peace. Sounds came and went outside the rattle of a cart far away, the sawing of the first cicada in the coarse grass twenty yards away beyond the wall. Someone behind the priest was breathing short and thick as under the pressure of an intolerable emotion, and yet the figure stood there still, without a movement or sway to break the carved motionlessness of the alb folds or the perfect poise of the white-shod feet. When he moved at last to uncover the precious blood, to lay his hands on the altar and adore, it was as if a statue had stirred into life, To the server, it was very nearly as a shock. Again, when the chalice was empty, that first impression reasserted itself. The human and the external died in the embrace of the divine and invisible, and once more silence lived and glowed. And again, as the spiritual energy sank back again into its origin, Sylvester stretched out the chalice. With knees that shook and eyes wide in expectation, the priest rose, adored, and went to the credence. It was customary after the Pope's Mass that the priest himself should offer the sacrifice in his presence. But today, so soon as the vestments had been laid one by one on the rough chest, Sylvester turned to the priest. Presently, he said softly, go up, father, at once to the roof, and tell the cardinal to be ready. I shall come in five minutes. It was surely a scirocco day, thought the priest, as he came up onto the flat roof. Overhead, instead of the clear blue proper to that hour of the morning, lay a pale yellow sky darkening even to brown at the horizon. Tabor, before him, hung distant and somber, seen through the impalpable atmosphere of sand, and across the plain, as he glanced behind him, beyond the white streak of Nain, nothing was visible except the pale outline of the tops of the hills against the sky. Even at this morning hour, too, the air was hot and breathless, broken only by the slow, stifling lift of the southwestern breeze that, blowing across countless miles of sand beyond faraway Egypt, gathered up the heat of the huge waterless continent, and was pouring it with scarcely a streak of sea to soften its malignity on this poor strip of land. Carmel, too, as he turned again, was swathed about its base with mist, half dry and half damp, and above showed its long bull head running out defiantly against the western sky. The very table as he touched it was dry and hot to the hand. By midday the steel would be intolerable. He pressed the lever and waited, pressed it again and waited again. There came the answering ring, and he tapped across the eighty miles of air that his eminence's presence was required at once. A minute or two passed, and then, after another rap of the bell, a line flicked out on the new white sheet. I am here, is it his holiness? He felt a hand upon his shoulder, and turned to see Sylvester, hooded and in white, behind his chair. Tell him yes. Ask him if there is further news." The Pope went to the chair once more and sat down, and a minute later the priest, with growing excitement, read out the answer. Inquiries are pouring in. Many expect Your Holiness to issue a challenge. My secretaries have been occupied since four o'clock. The anxiety is indescribable. Some are denying that they have a Pope. Something must be done at once. Is that all? Asked the Pope. Again the priest read out the answer. Yes and no. The news is true. It will be enforced immediately. Unless a step is taken immediately, there will be widespread and final apostasy. Very good, murmured the Pope in his official voice. Now listen carefully, Eminence. He was silent for a moment. His fingers joined beneath his chin as just now at Mass. Then he spoke. We are about to place ourselves unreservedly in the hands of God. Human prudence must no longer restrain us. We command you then, using all discretion that is possible, to communicate these wishes of ours to the following persons under the strictest secrecy, and to no others whatsoever. And for this service you are to employ messengers, taken from the order of Christ crucified, two for each message, which is not to be committed to writing in any form. The members of the Sacred College, numbering twelve, the Metropolitans and Patriarchs through the entire world, numbering twenty-two, the Generals of the Religious Orders, the Society of Jesus, the Friars, the Monks Ordinary, and the monk contemplative, four. These persons, thirty-eight in number, with the chaplain of your eminence, who shall act as notary, and my own who shall assist him, and ourselves, forty-one all told, these persons are to present themselves here at our palace of Nazareth not later than the eve of Pentecost. We feel ourselves unwilling to decide the steps necessary to be taken with reference to the new decree, except we first hear the counsel of our advisers and give them an opportunity of communicating freely with one another. These words as we have spoken them are to be forwarded to all those persons whom we have named, and your Eminence will further inform them that our deliberations will not occupy more than four days. As regards the questions of provisioning the Council and all matters of that kind, your Eminence will dispatch today the chaplain of whom we have spoken, who with my own chaplain will at once set about preparations, and your Eminence will yourself follow, appointing Father Merabut to act in your absence, not later than four days hence. Finally, to all who have asked explicit directions in the face of this new decree, communicate this one sentence, and no more. Lose not your confidence, which hath a great reward. For yet a little while, and he that is to come will come, and will not delay. Sylvester the Bishop, Servant of the Servants of God Chapter 3 Oliver Brand stepped out from the conference hall in Westminster on the Friday evening, so soon as the business was over and the plenipotentiaries had risen from the table, more concerned as to the effect of the news upon his wife than upon the world. He traced the beginning of the change to the day five months ago when the president of the world had first declared the development of his policy, and while Oliver himself had yielded to that development and from defending it in public had gradually convinced himself of its necessity, Mabel, for the first time in her life, had shown herself absolutely obstinate. The woman to his mind seemed to him to have fallen into some kind of insanity. Felsenberg's declaration had been made a week or two after his acclamation at Westminster, and Mabel had received the news of it at first with absolute incredulity. Then, when there was no longer any doubt that he had declared the extermination of the supernaturalists to be a possible necessity, there had been a terrible scene between husband and wife. She had said that she had been deceived, that the world's hope was a monstrous mockery, that the reign of universal peace was as far away as ever that Felsenberg had betrayed his trust and broken his word. There had been an appalling scene. He did not even now like to recall it to his imagination. She had quieted after a while, but his arguments, delivered with infinite patience, seemed to produce very little effect. She settled down into silence, hardly answering him. One thing only seemed to touch her, and that was when he spoke of the president himself. It was becoming plain to him that she was but a woman after all, at the mercy of a strong personality, but utterly beyond the reach of logic. He was very much disappointed yet he trusted to time to cure her the government of england had taken swift and skillful steps to reassure those who like mabel recoiled from the inevitable logic of the new policy an army of speakers traversed the country defending and explaining the press was engineered with extraordinary adroitness and it was possible to say that there was not a person among the millions of england who had not easy access to the government's defense briefly shorn of rhetoric their arguments were as follows and there was no doubt that on the whole they had the effect of quieting the amazed revolt of the more sentimental minds. Peace, it was pointed out, had for the first time in the world's history become a universal fact. There was no longer one state, however small, whose interests were not identical with those of one of the three divisions of the world of which it was a dependency. And that first stage had been accomplished nearly half a century ago. But the second stage, the reunion of these three divisions under a common head, an infinitely greater achievement than the former, since the conflicting interests were incalculably more vast. This had been consummated by a single person who, it appeared, had emerged from humanity at the very instant when such a character was demanded. It was surely not much to ask that those on whom these benefits had come should assent to the will and judgment of him through whom they had come. This then was an appeal to faith. The second main argument was addressed to reason, Persecution, as all enlightened persons confessed, was the method of a majority of savages who decided to force a set of opinions upon a minority who did not spontaneously share them. Now the peculiar malevolence of persecution in the past lay not in the employment of force, but in the abuse of it. That any one kingdom should dictate religious opinions to a minority of its members was an intolerable tyranny, for no one state possessed the right to lay down universal laws, the contrary to which might be held by its neighbor. This, however, disguised, was nothing else than the individualism of nations, a heresy even more disastrous to the commonwealth of the world than the individualism of the individual. But with the arrival of the universal community of interests, the whole situation was changed. The single personality of the human race had succeeded to the incoherence of divided units, and with that consummation, which might be compared to a coming of age, an entirely new set of rights had come into being. The human race was now a single entity with a supreme responsibility towards itself. There were no longer any private rights at all, such as had certainly existed in the period previous to this. Man now possessed dominion over every cell which composed his mystical body, and where any such cell asserted itself to the detriment of the body, the rights of the whole were unqualified. And there was no religion but one that claimed the equal rights of universal jurisdiction, and that the Catholic. The sects of the East, while each retained characteristics of its own, had yet found in the new man the incarnation of their ideals, and had therefore given in their allegiance to the authority of the whole body of whom he was the head. But the very essence of the Catholic religion was treason to the very idea of man. Christians directed their homage to a supposed supernatural being who was not only, so they claimed, outside of the world, but positively transcended it. Christians then, leaving aside the mad fable of the Incarnation, which might very well be suffered to die of its own folly, deliberately severed themselves from that body of which by human generation they had been made members. They were as mortified limbs yielding themselves to the domination of an outside force other than that which was their only life, and by that very act imperiled the entire body. This madness, then, was the one crime which still deserved the name. Murder, theft, rape, even anarchy itself, were as trifling faults compared to this monstrous sin, for while these injured indeed the body, they did not strike at its heart. Individuals suffered, and therefore those minor criminals deserved restraint, but the very life was not struck at but in Christianity there was a poison actually deadly. Every cell that became infected with it was infected in that very fiber that bound it to the spring of life. This and this alone was the supreme crime of high treason against man. And nothing but complete removal from the world could be an adequate remedy. These, then, were the main arguments addressed to that section of the world which still recoiled from the deliberate utterance of Felsenberg, and their success had been remarkable. Of course, the logic, in itself indisputable, had been dressed in a variety of costumes gilded with rhetoric, flushed with passion, and it had done its work in such a manner that, as summer drew on, Felsenberg had announced privately that he proposed to introduce a bill which should carry out to its logical conclusion the policy of which he had spoken. Now this, too, had been accomplished. Oliver let himself into his house and went straight upstairs to Mabel's room. It would not do to let her hear the news from any but his own lips. She was not there, and on inquiry he heard that she had gone out an hour before. He was disconcerted at this. The decree had been signed half an hour earlier, and in answer to an inquiry from Lord Pemberton, it had been stated that there was no longer any reason for secrecy, and that the decision might be communicated to the press. Oliver had hurried away immediately in order to make sure that Mabel should hear the news from him, and now she was out, and at any moment the placards might tell her of what had been done. He felt extremely uneasy, but for another hour or so was ashamed to act. Then he went to the tube and asked another question or two, but the servant had no idea of Mabel's movements. It might be she had gone to the church. Sometimes she did at this hour. He sent the woman off to see, and himself sat down again in the window seat of his wife's room, staring out disconsolately at the wide array of roofs in the golden sunset light that seemed to his eyes to be strangely beautiful this evening. The sky was not that pure gold which it had been every night during this last week. There was a touch of rose in it, and this extended across the entire vault, so far as he could see from west to east. He reflected on what he had lately read in an old book to the effect that the abolition of smoke had certainly changed evening colors for the worse. There had been a couple of severe earthquakes, too, in America. He wondered whether there was any connection. Then his thoughts flew back to Mabel. It was about ten minutes before he heard her footstep on the stairs, and as he stood up she came in. There was something in her face that told him that she knew everything, and his heart sickened at her pale rigidity. There was no fury there, nothing but white, hopeless despair, and an immense determination. Her lips showed a straight line, and her eyes beneath her white summer hat seemed contracted to pinpricks. She stood there, closing the door mechanically behind her, and made no further movement towards him. "'Is it true?' she said. Oliver drew one steady breath and sat down again. "'Is what true, my dear?' "'Is it true?' she said again, that all are to be questioned as to whether they believe in God, and to be killed if they confess it. Oliver licked his dry lips. You put it very harshly, he said. The question is whether the world has a right—she made a sharp movement with her head. It is true, then. And you signed it? My dear, I beg you not to make a scene. I am tired out, and I will not answer that until you have heard what I have to say. Say it, then. Sit down, then. She shook her head very well then well this is the point the world is one now not many individualism is dead it died when felsenberg became president of the world you surely see that absolutely new conditions prevail now there has never been anything like it before you know all this as well as i do again came that jerk of impatience you will please to hear me out he said wearily well now that this has happened there is a new morality it is exactly like a child coming to the age of reason We are obliged, therefore, to see that this continues, that there is no going back, no mortification, that all the limbs are in good health. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off, said Jesus Christ. Well, that is what we say. Now, for anyone to say that they believe in God, I doubt very much whether there is anyone who really does believe or understand what it means, but for anyone even to say so is the very worst crime conceivable. It is high treason. But there is going to be no violence. It will all be quite quiet and merciful. Why, you have always approved of euthanasia, as we all do well, it is that that will be used, and—' Once more she made a little movement with her head. The rest of her was like an image. Is this any use? she asked. Oliver stood up. He could not bear the hardness of her voice. Mabel, my darling. For an instant her lips shook. Then again she looked at him with eyes of ice. I don't want that, she said. It is of no use. Then you did sign it? Oliver had a sense of miserable desperation as he looked back at her. He would infinitely have preferred that she had stormed and wept. "'Mabel!' he cried again. "'Then you did sign it.' "'I did sign it,' he said at last." She turned and went towards the door. He sprang after her. "'Mabel, where are you going?' Then, for the first time in her life, she lied to her husband frankly and fully. "'I am going to rest a little,' she said. "'I shall see you presently at supper.' He still hesitated, But she met his eyes, pale indeed, but so honest that he fell back. Very well, my dear. Mabel, try to understand. He came down to supper half an hour later, primed with logic and even kindled with emotion. The argument seemed to him now so utterly convincing. Granted the premises that they both accepted and lived by, the conclusion was simply inevitable. He waited a minute or two, and at last went to the tube that communicated with the servants' quarters. Where is Mrs. Brand? he asked. There was an instant silence, and then the answer came. She left the house half an hour ago, sir. I thought you knew. That same evening, Mr. Francis was very busy in his office over the details connected with the Festival of Sustenance that was to be celebrated on the 1st of July. It was the first time that the particular ceremony had taken place, and he was anxious that it should be as successful as its predecessors. There were a few differences between this and the others, and it was necessary that the ceremoniarii should be fully instructed. So, with his model before him, a miniature replica of the interior of the abbey, with tiny dummy figures on blocks that could be shifted this way and that, he was engaged in adding in a minute ecclesiastical hand rubrical notes to his copy of the order of proceedings. When the porter, therefore, rang up a little after twenty-one o'clock, that a lady wished to see him, he answered rather brusquely down the tube that it was impossible. But the bell rang again, and to his impatient question the reply came up that it was Mrs. Brand below, and that she did not ask for more than ten minutes' conversation. This was quite another matter. Oliver Brand was an important personage, and his wife therefore had significance, and Mr. Francis apologized, gave directions that she was to come up to his anteroom, and rose, sighing from his dummy abbey and officials. She seemed very quiet this evening, he thought, as he shook hands with her a minute later. She wore her veil down, so that he could not see her face very well, but her voice seemed to lack its usual vivacity. "'I am so sorry to interrupt you, Mr. Francis,' she said. "'I only want to ask you one or two questions.' He smiled at her, encouragingly. Mr. Brand, no doubt. No, she said. Mr. Brand has not sent me. It is entirely my own affair. You will see my reasons presently. I will begin at once. I know I must not keep you. It all seemed rather odd, he thought, but no doubt he would understand soon. First, she said, I think you used to know Father Franklin. He became a cardinal, didn't he? Mr. Francis assented, smiling. Do you know if he is alive? No, he said. He is dead. He was in Rome, you know, at the time of its destruction. Ah, you are sure? Quite sure. Only one cardinal escaped, Steinman. He was hanged in Berlin, and the Patriarch of Jerusalem died a week or two later. Ah, very well. Well, now here is a very odd question. I ask for a particular reason which I cannot explain, but you will soon understand. It is this. Why do Catholics believe in God? He was so much taken aback that for a moment he sat staring. Yes she said tranquilly. It is a very odd question, but... She hesitated. Well, I will tell you, she said. The fact is that I have a friend who is... is in danger now from this new law. I want to be able to argue with her, and I must know her side. You are the only priest, I mean, who has been a priest, whom I ever knew, except Father Franklin, so I thought you would not mind telling me. Her voice was entirely natural. There was not a tremor or a falter in it. Mr. Francis smiled genially, rubbing his hands softly together. "'Ah,' he said. "'Yes, I see. "'Well, that is a very large question. "'Would not tomorrow, perhaps?' "'I only want just the shortest answer,' she said. "'It is really important for me to know at once. "'You see, this new law comes into force.' "'He nodded. "'Well, very briefly, I should say this. "'Catholics say that God can be perceived by reason. "'That from the arrangements of the world "'they can deduce that there must have been an arranger, "'a mind, you understand. "'Then they say that they deduce other things about God, "'that he is love, for example, because of happiness. "'And the pain?' she interrupted. He smiled again. Yes, that is the point. That is the weak point. But what do they say about that? Well, briefly, they say that pain is the result of sin. And sin? You see, I know nothing at all, Mr. Francis. Well, sin is the rebellion of man's will against God's. What do they mean by that? Well, you see, they say that God wanted to be loved by his creatures, so he made them free. Otherwise, they could not really love. But if they were free, it means that they could, if they liked, refuse to love and obey God. And that is what is called sin. You see what nonsense. She jerked her head a little. Yes, yes, she said. But I really want to get at what they think. Well, then that is all? Mr. Francis pursed his lips. Scarcely, he said. That is hardly more than what they call natural religion. Catholics believe much more than that. Well? My dear Mrs. Brand, it is impossible to put it in a few words, but in brief they believe that God became man, that Jesus was God, and that he did this in order to save them from sin by dying. By bearing pain, you mean? Yes, by dying. Well, what they call the Incarnation is really the point. Everything else flows from that. And once a man believes that, I must confess that all the rest follows, even down to scapulars and holy water. Mr. Francis, I don't understand a word you're saying. He smiled indulgently. Of course not, he said. It is all incredible nonsense. But, you know, I did really believe it all once. But it's unreasonable, she said. He made a little demurring sound. Yes, he said. In one sense, of course it is. Utterly unreasonable. But in another sense... She leaned forward suddenly, and he could catch the glint of her eyes beneath her white veil. Ah, she said, almost breathlessly, that is what I want to hear. Now tell me how they justify it. Well, he said slowly, as far as I remember, they say that there are other faculties besides those of reason. They say, for example, that the heart sometimes finds out things that the reason cannot. Intuitions, you see. For instance, they say that all things such as self-sacrifice and chivalry and even art all come from the heart, that reason comes with them, in rules of technique, for instance, but that it cannot prove them, they are quite apart from that. I think I see. Well, they say that religion is like that. In other words, they practically confess that it is merely a matter of emotion. He paused again, trying to be fair. Well, perhaps they would not say that, although it is true, but briefly, well? Well, they say that there is a thing called faith, a kind of deep conviction, unlike anything else, supernatural, which God is supposed to give to people who desire it, to people who pray for it and lead good lives and so on. And this faith? Well, this faith, acting upon what they call evidences, this faith makes them absolutely certain that there is a God, that he was made man and so on, with the church and all the rest of it. They say, too, that this is further proved by the effect that their religion has had in the world, and by the way it explains man's nature to himself. You see, it is just a case of self-suggestion. He heard her sigh and stopped. Is that any clearer, Mrs. Brand? Thank you very much, she said. It certainly is clearer. And it is true that Christians have died for this faith, whatever it is? Oh, yes, thousands and thousands, just as Mohammedans have for theirs. The Mohammedans believe in God, too, don't they? Well, they did, and I suppose that a few do now. But very few. The rest have become esoteric, as they say. And and which would you say were the most highly evolved people, East or West? Oh, West, undoubtedly. The East thinks a good deal, but it doesn't act much, and that always leads to confusion, even to stagnation of thought. And Christianity certainly has been the religion of the West up to a hundred years ago? Oh, yes. She was silent then, and Mr. Francis had time to reflect how very odd this all was. She certainly must be very much attached to this Christian friend of hers. Then she stood up, and he rose with her. Thank you so much, Mr. Francis. Then that is the kind of outline? Well, yes, so far as one can put it in a few words. Thank you. I mustn't keep you. He went with her towards the door, but within a yard of it she stopped. And you, Mr. Francis? You were brought up in all this. Does it ever come back to you? He smiled. Never, he said, except as a dream. How do you account for that, then? If it is all self-suggestion, you have had thirty years of it. She paused, and for a moment he hesitated what to answer. How would your old fellow Catholics account for it? They would say that I had forfeited light, that faith was withdrawn. And you? Again he paused. I should say that I had made a stronger self-suggestion the other way. I see. Good night, Mr. Francis. She would not let him come down the lift with her, so when he had seen the smooth box drop noiselessly below the level, he went back again to his model of the abbey and the little dummy figures. But before he began to move these about again, he sat for a moment or two with pursed lips, staring. Chapter Four A week later, Mabel awoke about dawn, and for a moment or two forgot where she was. She even spoke Oliver's name aloud, staring round the unfamiliar room, wondering what she did here. Then she remembered and was silent. It was the eighth day she had spent in this home. Her probation was finished. Today she was at liberty to do that for which she had come. On the Saturday of the previous week, she had gone through her private examination before the magistrate, stating under the usual conditions of secrecy her name, age, and home, as well as her reasons for making the application for euthanasia, and all had passed off well. She had selected Manchester as being sufficiently remote and sufficiently large to secure her freedom from Oliver's molestation, and her secret had been admirably kept. There was not a hint that her husband knew anything of her intentions, for, after all, in these cases the police were bound to assist the fugitive. Individualism was at least so far recognized as to secure to those weary of life the right of relinquishing it. She scarcely knew why she had selected this method, except that any other seemed impossible. The knife required skill and resolution. Firearms were unthinkable, and poison, under the new stringent regulations, was hard to obtain. Besides, she seriously wished to test her own intentions, and to be quite sure that there was no other way than this. Well, she was as certain as ever. The thought had first come to her in the mad misery of the outbreak of violence on the last day of the old year. Then it had gone again, soothed away by the arguments that man was still liable to relapse. Then once more it had recurred, a cold and convincing phantom, in the plain daylight revealed by Felsenberg's declaration. It had taken up its abode with her then, yet she controlled it, hoping against hope that the declaration would not be carried into action, occasionally revolting against its horror. Yet it had never been far away, and finally when the policy sprouted into deliberate law, she had yielded herself resolutely to its suggestion. That was eight days ago, and she had not one moment of faltering since that. Yet she had ceased to condemn. The logic had silenced her, All that she knew was that she could not bear it, that she had misconceived the new faith, that for her, whatever it was for others, there was no hope. She had not even a child of her own. Those eight days required by law had passed very peacefully. She had taken with her enough money to enter one of the private homes furnished with sufficient comfort to save from distractions those who had been accustomed to gentle living. The nurses had been pleasant and sympathetic. She had nothing to complain of. She had suffered, of course, to some degree from reactions, The second night after her arrival had been terrible, when, as she lay in bed in the hot darkness, her whole sentient life had protested and struggled against the fate her will ordained. It had demanded the familiar things, the promise of food and breath and human intercourse. It had writhed in horror against the blind dark towards which it moved so inevitably, and in the agony had been pacified only by the half-hinted promise of some deeper voice suggesting that death was not the end. With morning light, sanity had come back. The will had reassumed the mastery and with it had withdrawn explicitly the implied hope of continued existence she had suffered again for an hour or two from a more concrete fear the memory came back to her of those shocking revelations that ten years ago had convulsed england and brought about the establishment of these homes under government supervision those evidence that for years in the great vivisection laboratories human subjects had been practiced upon persons who with the same intentions as herself had cut themselves off from the world in private euthanasia houses to whom had been supplied a gas that suspended instead of destroying animation. But this too had passed with the return of light. Such things were impossible now under the new system, at least in England. She had refrained from making an end upon the continent for this very reason. There, where sentiment was weaker and logic more imperious, materialism was more consistent. Since men were but animals, the conclusion was inevitable. There had been but one physical drawback, the intolerable heat of the days and nights, it seemed, scientists said, that an entirely unexpected heat wave had been generated. There were a dozen theories, most of which were mutually exclusive one of another. It was humiliating, she thought, that men who professed to have taken the earth under their charge should be so completely baffled. The conditions of the weather had, of course, been accompanied by disasters. There had been earthquakes of astonishing violence. A ripple had wrecked not less than 25 towns in America. An island or two had disappeared, and that bewildering Vesuvius seemed to be working up for a denouement. But no one knew really the explanation. One man had been wild enough to say that some cataclysm had taken place in the center of the earth, so she had heard from her nurse. But she was not greatly interested. It was only tiresome that she could not walk much in the garden, and had to be content with sitting in her own cool shaded room on the second floor. There was only one other matter of which she had asked, namely the effect of the new decree. But the nurse did not seem to know much about that. It appeared that there had been an outrage or two, but the law had not yet been enforced to any great extent. A week, after all, was a short time, even though the decree had taken effect at once and magistrates were beginning the prescribed census. It seemed to her as she lay awake this morning, staring at that tinted ceiling, and out now and again at the quiet little room, that the heat was worse than ever. For a minute she thought she must have overslept, but as she touched her repeater it told her that it was scarcely after four o'clock. Well, well, she would not have to bear it much longer. She thought that about eight it would be time to make an end. There was her letter to Oliver yet to be written, and one or two final arrangements to be made. As regarded the morality of what she was doing, the relation, that is to say, which her act bore to the common life of man, she had no shadow of doubt. It was her belief, as of the whole humanitarian world, that just as bodily pain occasionally justified this termination of life, so also did mental pain. There was a certain pitch of distress at which the individual was no longer necessary to himself or the world. It was the most charitable act that could be performed. But she had never thought in old days that that state could ever be hers. Life had been much too interesting. But it had come to this. There was no question of it. Perhaps a dozen times in that week she had thought over her conversation with Mr. Francis. Her going to him had been little more than instinctive. She did just wish to hear what the other side was, whether Christianity was as ludicrous as she had always thought. It seemed that it was not ludicrous. It was only terribly pathetic. It was just a lovely dream, an exquisite piece of poetry. It would be heavenly to believe it, but she did not. No, a transcendent god was unthinkable, although not quite so unthinkable as a merely immeasurable man. And as for the incarnation, well, well, there seemed no way out of it. The humanity religion was the only one. Man was god, or at least his highest manifestation. And he was a god with which she did not wish to have anything more to do these faint new instincts after something other than intellect and emotion were she knew perfectly well nothing but refined emotion itself she had thought a great deal of felsenberg however and was astonished at her own feelings he was certainly the most impressive man she had ever seen it did seem very probable indeed that he was what he claimed to be the incarnation of the ideal man the first perfect product of humanity but the logic of his position was too much for her she saw now that he was perfectly logical that he had not been inconsistent in denouncing the destruction of Rome and a week later making his declaration. It was the passion of one man against another that he denounced, of kingdom against kingdom and sect against sect, for this was suicidal for the race. He denounced passion, too, not judicial action. Therefore this new decree was as logical as himself. It was a judicial act on the part of a united world against a tiny majority that threatened the principle of life and faith. And it was to be carried out with supreme mercy, There was no revenge or passion or partisan spirit in it from beginning to end. No more than a man is revengeful or passionate when he amputates a diseased limb. Oliver had convinced her of that. Yes, it was logical and sound, and it was because it was so that she could not bear it. But ah, what a sublime man Felsenberg was. It was a joy to her even to recall his speeches and his personality. She would have liked to see him again, but it was no good. She had better be done with it as tranquilly as possible and the world must go forward without her. She was just tired out with facts. She dozed off again presently, and it seemed scarcely five minutes before she looked up to see a gentle smiling face of a white-capped nurse bending over her. "'It is nearly six o'clock, my dear. The time you told me. I came to see about breakfast.' Mabel drew a long breath. Then she sat up suddenly, throwing back the sheet. It struck a quarter past six from the little clock on the mantel shelf as she laid down her pen. Then she took up the closely written sheets, leaned back in her chair, and began to read. Home of Rest Number 3 Manchester West My dear, I am very sorry, but it has come back to me. I really cannot go on any longer. So I am going to escape in the only way left, as I once told you. I have had a very quiet and happy time here. They have been most kind and considerate. You see, of course, from the heading on this paper, what I mean. Well, you have always been very dear to me. You are still, even at this moment. So you have a right to know my reasons so far as I know them myself. It is very difficult to understand myself, but it seems to me that I am not strong enough to live. So long as I was pleased and excited it was all very well, especially when he came. But I think I had expected it to be different. I did not understand as as I do now how it must come to this, how it is all quite logical and right. I could bear it when I thought that they had acted through passion, but this is deliberate. I did not realize that peace must have its laws and must protect itself, and somehow that peace is not what I want. It is being alive at all that is wrong. Then there is this difficulty. I know how absolutely in agreement you are with this new state of affairs. Of course you are, because you are so much stronger and more logical than I am. But if you have a wife, she must be of one mind with you. And I am not any more at least not with my heart, though I see you are right. Do you understand, my dear? If we had had a child, it might have been different. I might have liked to go on living for his sake. But humanity, somehow— Oh, Oliver, I can't. I can't. I know I am wrong and that you are right, but there it is. I cannot change myself, so I am quite sure that I must go. Then I want to tell you this, that I am not at all frightened. I never can understand why people are, unless of course they are Christians. I should be horribly frightened if I was one of them. But you see, we both know that there is nothing beyond. It is life that I am frightened of, not death. Of course I should be frightened if there was any pain, but the doctors tell me that there is absolutely none. It is simply going to sleep. The nerves are dead before the brain. I'm going to do it myself. I don't want anyone else in the room. In a few minutes, the nurse here, Sister Anne, with whom I have made great friends, will bring in the thing and then she will leave me. As regards what happens afterwards, I do not mind at all. Please do exactly as you wish. The cremation will take place tomorrow morning at noon, so you can be here if you like. Or you can send directions and they will send on the urn to you. I know you like to have your mother's urn in the garden, so perhaps you will like mine. Please do exactly what you like. And with all my things too, of course I leave them to you. Now, my dear, I want to say this, that I am very sorry indeed now that I was so tiresome and stupid. I think I did really believe your arguments all along, but I did not want to believe them. Do you see now why I was so tiresome? Oliver, my darling, you have been extraordinarily good to me. Yes, I know I am crying, but I am really very happy. This is such a lovely ending. I wish I hadn't been obliged to make you so anxious during this last week, but I had to. I knew you would persuade me against it if you found me, and that would have been worse than ever. I am sorry I told you that lie, too. Indeed, it is the first lie I ever did tell you. Well, I don't think there is much more to say. Oliver, my dear, goodbye. I send you my love with all my heart. Mabel. She sat still when she had read it through, and her eyes were still wet with tears. Yet it was all perfectly true. She was far happier than she could be if she had still the prospect of going back. Life seemed entirely blank. Death was so obvious an escape. Her soul ached for it as a body for sleep. She directed the envelope, still with a perfectly steady hand, laid it on the table, and leaned back once more, glancing again at her untasted breakfast. Then she suddenly began to think of her conversation with Mr. Francis, and by a strange association of ideas remembered the fall of the volor in Brighton, the busyness of the priest, and the euthanasia boxes. When Sister Anne came in a few minutes later, she was astonished at what she saw. The girl crouched at the window, her hands on the sill, staring out at the sky in an attitude of unmistakable horror. Sister Anne came across the room quickly, setting down something on the table as she passed. She touched the girl on the shoulder. "'My dear, what is it?' There was a long, sobbing breath, and Mabel turned, rising as she turned, and clutched the nurse with one shaking hand, pointing out with the other. "'There,' she said. "'There, look!' "'Well, my dear, what is it? I see nothing. It is a little dark.' "'Dark?' said the other. "'You call that dark? Why, why, it is black. Black!' The nurse drew her softly backwards to the chair, turning her from the window. She recognized nervous fear, but no more than that. But Mabel tore herself free and wheeled again. You call that a little dark? she said. Why, look, sister, look! Yet there was nothing remarkable to be seen. In front rose up the feathery head of an elm, then the shuttered windows across the court, the roof, and above that the morning sky, a little heavy and dusky as before a storm, but no more than that. Well, what is it, my dear? What do you see? Why, why, look! There, listen to that. A faint, far away rumble sounded as the rolling of a wagon, so faint that it might almost be an hour delusion. But the girl's hands were at her ears, and her face was one white, wide-eyed mask of terror. The nurse threw her arms around her. My dear, she said, you are not yourself. That is nothing but a little heat thunder. Sit down quietly. She could feel the girl's body shaking beneath her hands, but there was no resistance as she drew her to the chair. The lights! The lights! sobbed Mabel. Will you promise me to sit quietly, then? She nodded, and the nurse went across to the door, smiling tenderly. She had seen such things before. A moment later, the room was full of exquisite sunlight as she switched the handle. As she turned, she saw that Mabel had wheeled herself round in the chair and with clasped hands was still staring out at the sky above the roofs. But she was plainly quieter again now. The nurse came back and put her hand on her shoulder. "'You are overwrought, my dear. Now you must believe me. There is nothing to be frightened of. It is just nervous excitement. Shall I put down the blind?' Mabel turned her face. Yes, certainly the light had reassured her. Her face was still white and bewildered, but the steady look was coming back to her eyes, though, even as she spoke, they wandered back more than once to the window. "'Nurse,' she said more quietly, "'please look again and tell me if you see nothing.' If you say there is nothing, I will believe that I am going mad. No, you must not touch the blind. No, there was nothing. The sky was a little dark, as if a blight were coming on. But there was hardly more than a veil of cloud, and the light was scarcely more than tinged with gloom. It was just such a sky as precedes a spring thunderstorm. She said so, clearly and firmly. Mabel's face studied still more. Very well, nurse. Then— She turned to the little table by the side on which Sister Anne had set down what she had brought into the room. "'Show me, please.' "'The nurse still hesitated. "'Are you sure you are not too frightened, my dear? "'Shall I get you anything?' "'I have no more to say,' said Mabel firmly. "'Show me, please.' "'Sister Anne turned resolutely to the table. "'There rested upon it a white enameled box, "'delicately painted with flowers. "'From this box emerged a white flexible tube "'with a broad mouthpiece, "'fitted with two leather-covered steel clasps. "'From the side of the box nearest the chair "'protruded a little china handle.' Now, my dear, began the nurse quietly, watching the other's eyes turn once again to the window and then back. Now, my dear, you sit there as you are now. Your head right back, please. When you are ready, you put this over your mouth and clasp the springs behind your head. So it works quite easily. Then you turn this handle round that way as far as it will go. And that is all. Mabel nodded. She had regained her self-command and understood plainly enough, though even as she spoke, once again her eyes strayed away to the window. That is all. "'She said. "'And what then?' "'The nurse eyed her doubtfully for a moment. "'I understand perfectly,' said Mabel. "'And what then?' "'There is nothing more. "'Breathe naturally. "'You will feel sleepy almost directly. "'Then you close your eyes, and that is all.' "'Mabel laid the tube on the table and stood up. "'She was completely herself now. "'Give me a kiss, sister,' she said. "'The nurse nodded and smiled to her once more at the door, "'but Mabel hardly noticed it. "'Again she was looking towards the window.' I shall come back in half an hour, said Sister Anne. Then her eyes caught a square of white upon the center table. Ah, that letter, she said. Yes, said the girl absently. Please take it. The nurse took it up, glanced at the address, and again at Mabel. Still she hesitated. In half an hour, she repeated, there is no hurry at all. It doesn't take five minutes. Goodbye, my dear. But Mabel was still looking out of the window and made no answer. "'Mabel stood perfectly still "'until she heard the locking of the door "'and the withdrawal of the key. "'Then once more she went to the window "'and clasped the sill. "'From where she stood there was visible to her first the courtyard beneath, "'with its lawn in the center "'and a couple of trees growing there, "'all plain in the brilliant light "'that now streamed from her window. "'And secondly, above the roofs, "'a tremendous pall of ruddy black. "'It was the more terrible from the contrast. "'Earth, it seemed, was capable of light. "'Heaven had failed. "'It appeared, too, that there was a curious stillness.' The house was, usually, quiet enough at this hour. The inhabitants of that place were in no mood for bustle. But now it was more than quiet. It was deathly still. It was such a hush as precedes the sudden crash of the sky's artillery. But the moments went by, and there was no such crash. Only once again there sounded a solemn rolling, as of some great wane far away. Stupendously impressive, for with it to the girls' ears there seemed mingled a murmur of innumerable voices, ghostly crying and applause. Then again the hush settled down like wool. She had begun to understand now. The darkness and the sounds were not for all eyes and ears. The nurse had seen and heard nothing extraordinary, and the rest of the world of men saw and heard nothing. To them it was no more than the hint of a coming storm. Mabel did not attempt to distinguish between the subjective and the objective. It was nothing to her as to whether the sights and sounds were generated by her own brain or perceived by some faculty hitherto unknown. She seemed to herself to be standing already apart from the world which she had known. It was receding from her, or, rather, While standing where it had always done, it was melting, transforming itself, passing to some other mode of existence. The strangeness seemed no more strange than anything else, than that, that little painted box upon the table. Then, hardly knowing what she said, looking steadily upon that appalling sky, she began to speak. "'Oh God,' she said, "'if you are really there, really there.' Her voice faltered, and she gripped the sill to steady herself. She wondered vaguely why she spoke so. It was neither intellect nor emotion that inspired her. Yet she continued. "'Oh, God, I know you are not there. Of course you are not. But if you were there, I know what I would say to you. I would tell you how puzzled and tired I am. No, no, I need not tell you. You would know it. But I would say that I was very sorry for all this. Oh, you would know that, too. I need not say anything at all. Oh, God, I don't know what I want to say. I would like you to look after Oliver, of course.' and all your poor Christians. Oh, they will have such a hard time, God. God, you would understand, wouldn't you? Again came the heavy rumble and the solemn bass of a myriad voices. It seemed a shade nearer, she thought. She never liked thunderstorms or shouting crowds. They always gave her a headache. Well, well, she said. Goodbye, everything. Then she was in the chair. The mouthpiece. Yes, that was it. She was furious at the trembling of her hands. Twice the spring slipped from her polished coils of hair. Then it was fixed, and, as if a breeze fanned her, her sense came back. She found she could breathe quite easily. There was no resistance. That was a comfort. There would be no suffocation about it. She put out her left hand and touched the handle, conscious less of its sudden coolness than of the unbearable heat in which the room seemed almost suddenly plunged. She could hear the drumming pulses in her temples and the roaring of the voices. She dropped the handle once more— and with both hands tore at the loose white wrapper that she had put on this morning. Yes, that was a little easier. She could breathe better, so. Again her fingers felt for and found the handle, but the sweat streamed from her fingers, and for an instant she could not turn the knob. Then it yielded suddenly. For one instant the sweet languid smell struck her consciousness like a blow, for she knew it as the scent of death. Then the steady will that had borne her so far asserted itself, and she laid her hands softly in her lap, breathing deeply and easily. She had closed her eyes at the turning of the handle, but now opened them again, curious to watch the aspect of the fading world. She had determined to do this a week ago. She would at least miss nothing of this unique last experience. It seemed at first there was no change. There was the feathery head of the elm, the lead roof opposite, and the terrible sky above. She noticed a pigeon, white against the blackness, soar and swoop again out of sight in an instant. Then the following things happened. There was a sudden sensation of ecstatic lightness in all her limbs. She attempted to lift a hand and was aware that it was impossible. It was no longer hers. She attempted to lower her eyes from that broad strip of violet sky and perceived that that too was impossible. Then she understood that the will had already lost touch with the body, that the crumbling world had receded to an infinite distance. That was as she had expected. But what continued to puzzle her was that her mind was still active. It was true that the world she had known had withdrawn itself from the dominion of consciousness as her body had done, except that was in the sense of hearing, which was still strangely alert. Yet there was still enough memory to be aware that there was such a world, that there were other persons in existence, that men went about their business, knowing nothing of what had happened, but faces, names, places, had all alike gone. In fact, she was conscious of herself in such a manner as she had never been before. It seemed as if she had penetrated at last into some recess of her being into which hitherto she had only looked as through clouded glass." This was very strange, and yet it was familiar, too. She had arrived, it seemed, at a center, round the circumference of which she had been circling all her life. And it was more than a mere point. It was a distant space, walled and enclosed. At the same instant, she knew that hearing, too, was gone. Then an amazing thing happened, yet it appeared to her that she had always known it would happen, although her mind had never articulated it. This is what happened. The enclosure melted, with the sound of breaking, and a limitless space was about her. Limitless, different to everything else, and alive, and astir. It was alive, as a breathing, panting body is alive, self-evident and overpowering. It was one, yet it was many. It was immaterial, yet absolutely real, real in a sense in which she had never dreamed of reality. Yet even this was familiar, as a place often visited in dreams is familiar. And then without warning, something resembling sound or light, something which she knew in an instant to be unique, tore across it. And she saw and understood. Chapter 5 Oliver had passed the days since Mabel's disappearance in an indescribable horror. He had done all that was possible. He had traced her to the station and to Victoria, where he lost her clue. He had communicated with the police, and the official answer, telling him nothing, had arrived to the effect that there was no news. And it was not until the Tuesday following her disappearance that Mr. Francis, "'hearing by chance of his trouble, "'informed him by telephone "'that he had spoken with her "'on the Friday night. "'But there was no satisfaction "'to be got from him. "'Indeed, the news was bad "'rather than good, "'for Oliver could not but be dismayed "'at the report of the conversation, "'in spite of Mr. Francis's assurances "'that Mrs. Brand had shown "'no kind of inclination "'to defend the Christian cause. two theories gradually emerged "'in his mind. "'Either she was gone to the protection "'of some unknown Catholic, "'or, and he grew sick at the thought, "'she had applied somewhere "'for euthanasia, "'as she had once threatened, and was now under the care of the law. Such an event was sufficiently common since the passing of the Release Act in 1998, and it was frightful that he could not condemn it. On the Tuesday evening, as he sat heavily in his room, for the hundredth time attempting to trace out some coherent line through the maze of intercourse he had had with his wife during these past months, his bell suddenly rang. It was the red label of Whitehall that had made its appearance, and for an instant his heart leapt with hope that it was news of her. But at the first words it sank again, Brand? came the sharp fairy voice. Is that you? Yes, I am Snowford. You are wanted at once. At once, you understand. There is an extraordinary meeting at the council at twenty o'clock. The president will be there. You understand the urgency. No time for more. Come instantly to my room. Even this message scarcely distracted him. He, with the rest of the world, was no longer surprised at the sudden descents of the president. He came and vanished again without warning, traveling and working with incredible energy, yet always, as it seemed, retaining his personal calm. It was already after nineteen. Oliver supped immediately, and a quarter of an hour before the hour presented himself in Snowford's room, where half a dozen of his colleagues were assembled. That minister came forward to meet him with a strange excitement in his face. He drew him aside by a button. See here, Brand, you are wanted to speak first, immediately after the President's secretary who will open. They are coming from Paris. It is about a new matter altogether. He has had information of the whereabouts of the Pope. It seems that there is one. Oh, you will understand presently. Oh, and by the way—he went on, looking curiously at the strained face—I am sorry to hear of your anxiety. Pemberton told me just now. Oliver lifted a hand abruptly. Tell me, he said. What have I wanted to say? Well, the President will have a proposal, we imagine. You know our minds well enough. Just explain our attitudes towards the Catholics. Oliver's eyes shrank suddenly to two bright lines beneath the lids. He nodded. Cartwright came up presently, an immense bent old man with a face of parchment, as befitted the Lord Chief Justice. "'By the way, Brand, what do you know of a man called Phillips?' "'He was my secretary,' said Oliver slowly. "'What about him?' "'I think he must be mad. He has given himself up to a magistrate, entreating to be examined at once. The magistrate has applied for instructions. You see, the act has scarcely begun to move yet.' "'But what has he done?' "'That's the difficulty. He says he cannot deny God, neither can he affirm him. He was your secretary, then?' "'Certainly.' I knew he was inclined to Christianity. I had to get rid of him for that. Well, he is to be remanded for a week. Perhaps he will be able to make up his mind. Then the talk shifted off again. Two or three more came up, and all eyed Oliver with a certain curiosity. The story was gone about that his wife had left him. They wished to see how he took it. At five minutes before the hour, a bell rang, and the door into the corridor was thrown open. "'Come, gentlemen,' said the Prime Minister." The council chamber was a long high room on the first floor. Its walls from floor to ceiling were lined with books. A noiseless rubber carpet was underfoot. There were no windows. The room was lighted artificially. A long table, set round with armchairs, ran the length of the floor, eight on either side, and the presidential chair, raised on a dais, stood at the head. Each man went straight to his chair, in silence, and remained there, waiting. The room was beautifully cool, in spite of the absence of windows, and was a pleasant contrast to the hot evening outside, through which most of these men had come. They too had wondered at the surprising weather, and had smiled at the conflict of the infallible. But they were not thinking about that now. The coming of the President was a matter which always silenced the most loquacious. Besides, this time, they understood that the affair was more serious than usual. At one minute before the hour, again a bell sounded four times, and ceased and at the signal, each man turned instinctively to the high sliding door behind the presidential chair. There was dead silence within and without. The huge government offices were luxuriously provided with sound-deadening apparatus, and not even the rolling of the vast motors within a hundred yards was able to send a vibration through the layers of rubber on which the walls rested. There was only one noise that could penetrate, and that the sound of thunder. The experts were at present unable to exclude this. Again the silence seemed to fall in one yet deeper veil. Then the door opened, and a figure came swiftly through, followed by another in black and scarlet. He passed straight up to the chair, followed by two secretaries, bowed slightly to this side and that, sat down and made a little gesture. Then they, too, were in their chairs, upright and intent. For perhaps the hundredth time, Oliver, staring upon the president, marveled at the quietness and the astounding personality of him. He was in the English judicial dress that had passed down through centuries, black and scarlet, with sleeves of white fur and a crimson sash, and that had lately been adopted as the English presidential costume of him who stood at the head of the legislature. But it was in his personality, in the atmosphere that flowed from him, that the marvel lay. It was as the scent of the sea to the physical nature. It exhilarated, cleansed, kindled, intoxicated. It was as inexplicably attractive as a cherry orchard in spring, as affecting as the cry of stringed instruments, as compelling as a storm. So writers had said, They compared it to a stream of clear water, to the flash of a gem, to the love of a woman. They lost all decency sometimes. They said it fitted all moods, as the voice of many waters. They called it again and again, as explicitly as possible, the divine nature perfectly incarnate at last. Then Oliver's reflections dropped from him like a mantle, for the president, with downcast eyes and head thrown back, made a little gesture to the ruddy-faced secretary on his right, and this man, without a movement, began to speak like an impersonal actor repeating his part gentlemen in an even resonant voice the president has come direct from paris this afternoon his honor was in berlin this morning early in moscow yesterday in new york tonight his honor must be in turin and tomorrow will begin to return through spain north africa greece and the southeastern states this was the usual formula for such speeches the president spoke but little himself now but was careful for the information of his subjects on occasions like this his secretaries were perfectly trained and the speaker was no exception After a slight pause, he continued, This is the business, gentlemen. Last Thursday, as you are aware, the plenipotentiary signed the test act in this room, and it was immediately communicated all over the world. At 16 o'clock, his honor received a message from a man named Dolgorovsky, who is, it is understood, one of the cardinals of the Catholic Church. This he claimed, and on inquiry it was found to be a fact. His information confirmed what was already suspected, namely that there was a man claiming to be pope, who had created, so the phrase is, other cardinals shortly after the destruction of Rome, subsequent to which his own election took place in Jerusalem. It appears that this pope, with a good deal of statesmanship, has chosen to keep his own name and place of residence a secret from even his own followers, with the exception of the twelve cardinals, that he has done a great deal, through the instrumentality of one of his cardinals in particular, and through his new order, in general, towards the reorganization of the Catholic Church, and that at this moment he is living apart from the world in complete security." His honor blames himself that he did not do more than suspect something of the kind. Misled, he thinks, by a belief that if there had been a pope, news would have been heard of it from other quarters, for, as is well known, the entire structure of the Christian church rests upon him as upon a rock. Further, his honor thinks inquiries should have been made in the very place where now it is understood that this pope is living. The man's name, gentlemen, is Franklin. Oliver started uncontrollably, but relapsed again to bright-eyed intelligence, as for an instant the president glanced up from his motionlessness. Franklin, repeated the secretary, and he is living in Nazareth, where it is said the founder of Christianity passed his youth. Now this, gentlemen, his honor heard on Thursday in last week. He caused inquiries to be made and on Friday morning received further intelligence from Dolgorovsky that this pope had summoned to Nazareth a meeting of his cardinals and certain other officials from all over the world to consider what steps should be taken in view of the new test act. This his honor takes to show an extreme want of statesmanship which seems hard to reconcile with his former action, These persons are summoned by special messengers to meet on Saturday next, and will begin their deliberations after some Christian ceremonies on the following morning. You wish, gentlemen, no doubt to know Dolgorovsky's motives in making all this known. His honor is satisfied that they are genuine. The man has been losing belief in his religion. In fact, he has come to see that this religion is the supreme obstacle to the consolidation of the race. He has esteemed it his duty, therefore, to lay this information before his honor. It is interesting, as a historical parallel, to reflect that the same kind of incident marked the rise of Christianity as will mark, it is thought, its final extinction, namely the informing on the part of one of the leaders of the place and method by which the principal personage may be best approached. It is also surely very significant that the scene of the extinction of Christianity is identical with that of its inauguration. Well, gentlemen, his honor's proposal is as follows, carrying out the declaration to which you all are seated. It is that a force should proceed during the night of Saturday next to Palestine, and on the Sunday morning, when these men will all be gathered together, that this force should finish as swiftly and mercifully as possible the work to which the powers have set their hands. So far the consent of the governments which have been consulted has been unanimous, and there is little doubt that the rest will be equally so. His honor felt that he could not act in so grave a matter of his own responsibility. It is not merely local, it is a Catholic administration of justice, and will have results wider than it is safe minutely to prophesy. It is not necessary to enter into his honor's reasons. They are already well known to you. But before asking for your opinion, he desires me to indicate what he thinks, in the event of your approval, should be the method of action. Each government it is proposed should take part in the final scene, for it is something of a symbolic action. And for this purpose, it is thought well that each of the three departments of the world should depute volors, to the number of the constituting states, 122 all told, to set about the business. These volors should have no common meeting ground, otherwise the news will surely penetrate to Nazareth, for it is understood that this new order of Christ crucified has a highly organized system of espionage. The rendezvous, then, should be no other than Nazareth itself, and the time of meeting should be, it is thought, not later than 9 o'clock, according to Palestine reckoning. These details, however, can be decided and communicated as soon as a determination has been formed as regards the entire scheme. With respect to the exact method of carrying out the conclusion, his honor is inclined to think that it will be more merciful to enter into no negotiations with the persons concerned. An opportunity should be given to the inhabitants of the village to make their escape, if they so desire it, and then, with the explosives that the force should carry, the end can be practically instantaneous. For himself, his honor proposes to be there in person, and further, that the actual discharge should take place from his own car. It seems but suitable that the world which has done his honor the goodness to elect him to its presidentship should act through his hands, and this would be at least some slight token of respect to a superstition which, however infamous, is yet the one and only force capable of withstanding the true progress of man. His honor promises you, gentlemen, that in the event of this plan being carried out, we shall be no more troubled with Christianity. Already the moral effect of the test act has been prodigious. It is understood that by tens of thousands, Catholics, numbering among them even members of this new fanatical religious order, have been renouncing their follies even in these few days. And a final blow struck now at the very heart and head of the Catholic Church, eliminating, as it would do, the actual body on which the entire organization subsists, would render its resurrection impossible. It is a well-known fact that, granted the extinction of the line of popes, together with those necessary for its continuance, there could be no longer any question amongst even the most ignorant that the claim of Jesus had ceased to be either reasonable or possible. Even the order that has provided the sinews for this movement must cease to exist. Dolgorovsky, of course, is the difficulty, for it is not certainly known whether one cardinal would be considered sufficient for the propagation of the line, and, although reluctantly, his honor feels bound to suggest that, at the conclusion of the affair, Dolgorovsky also, who will not, of course, be with his fellows at Nazareth, should be mercifully removed from even the danger of a relapse. His honor, then, asks you, gentlemen, as briefly as possible, to state your views on the points of which I have had the privilege of speaking. The businesslike voice ceased. He had spoken throughout in the manner with which he had begun— His eyes had been downcast throughout, his voice had been tranquil and restrained, his deportment had been admirable. There was an instant silence, and all eyes settled steadily again upon the motionless figure in black and scarlet and the ivory face. Then Oliver stood up. His face was as white as paper, his eyes bright and dilated. "'Sir,' he said, "'I have no doubt that we are all of one mind. I need say no more than that, so far as I am a representative of my colleagues, we assent to the proposal and leave all details in your honor's hands.' The President lifted his eyes and ran them swiftly along the rigid faces turned to him. Then, in the breathless hush, he spoke for the first time in his strange voice, now as passionless as a frozen river. "'Is there any other proposal?' There was a murmur of assent as the men rose to their feet. "'Thank you, gentlemen,' said the Secretary. It was a little before seven o'clock on the morning of Saturday that Oliver stepped out of the motor that had carried him to Wimbledon Common, And began to go up the steps of the old Volor stage, abandoned five years ago. It had been thought better, in view of the extreme secrecy that was to be kept, that England's representative in the expedition should start from a comparatively unknown point, and this old stage, in disuse now, except for occasional trials of new government machines, had been selected. Even the lift had been removed, and it was necessary to climb the hundred and fifty steps on foot. It was with a certain unwillingness that he had accepted this post among the four delegates, for nothing had been heard of his wife and it was terrible to him to leave London while her fate was as yet doubtful. On the whole, he was less inclined than ever now to accept the euthanasia theory. He had spoken to one or two of her friends, all of whom declared that she had never even hinted at such an end. And again, although he was well aware of the eight-day law in the matter, even if she had determined on such a step, there was nothing to show that she was yet in England. And, in fact, it was more than likely that if she were bent on such an act, she would go abroad for it, where laxer conditions prevailed. In short, it seemed that he could do no good by remaining in England, and the temptation to be present at the final act of justice in the East, by which those who had indirectly been the cause of his tragedy were to be wiped out, and Franklin too among them, Franklin, that parody of the lord of the world, this added to the opinion of his colleagues in the government, and the curious sense, never absent from him now, that Felsenburgh's approval was a thing to die for if necessary, these things had finally prevailed. He left behind him at home his secretary, with instructions that no expense was to be spared in communicating with him should any news of his wife arrive during his absence. It was terribly hot this morning, and by the time that he reached the top, he noticed that the monster in the net was already fitted into its white aluminum casing, and that the fans within the corridor and saloon were already active. He stepped inside to secure a seat in the saloon, set his bag down, and after a word or two with the guard, who of course had not yet been informed of their destination, learning that the others were not yet come, He went out again onto the platform for coolness' sake, and to brood in peace. London looked strange this morning, he thought. Here beneath him was the common, parched somewhat with the intense heat of the previous week, stretching for, perhaps, half a mile. Tumbled ground, smooth stretches of turf, and the heads of heavy trees. Up to the first house roofs, set too, it seemed, in bowers of foliage. Then beyond that began the serried array, line beyond lined, broken in one spot by the gleam of a river reach, and then on again fading beyond eyesight but what surprised him was the density of the air. It was now, as old books related, it had been in the days of smoke. There was no freshness, no translucence of morning atmosphere. It was impossible to point in any one direction to the source of this veiling gloom, for on all sides it was the same. Even the sky overhead lacked its blue. It appeared painted with a muddy brush, and the sun showed the same faint tinge of red. Yes, it was like that, he said wearily to himself, like a second-rate sketch. There was no sense of mystery as of a veiled city, but rather unreality. The shadows seemed lacking in definiteness, the outlines in grouping in coherence. A storm was wanted, he reflected, or even, it might be, one more earthquake on the other side of the world would, in wonderful illustration of the globe's unity, relieve the pressure on this side. Well, the journey would be worth taking even for the interest of observing climatic changes. But it would be terribly hot, he mused, by the time the south of France was reached then his thoughts leapt back to their own gnawing misery. It was another ten minutes before he saw the scarlet government motor, with awnings out, slide up the road from the direction of Fulham, and yet five minutes more before the three men appeared with their servants behind them, Maxwell, Snowford, and Cartwright, all alike, as was Oliver, in white duck from head to foot. They did not speak one word of their business, for the officials were going to and fro, and it was advisable to guard against even the smallest possibility of betrayal. The guard had been told that the volor was required for a three-day's journey, that provisions were to be taken in for that period, and that the first point towards which the course was to lie was the center of South Downs. There would be no stopping for at least a day and a night. Further instructions had reached them from the president on the previous morning, by which time he had completed his visitation and received the assent of the emergency councils of the world. This Snowford commented upon in an undertone and added a word or two as to details as the four stood together looking out over the city. Briefly, the plan was as follows, at least so far as it concerned England. The Volor was to approach Palestine from the direction of the Mediterranean, observing to get in touch with France on her left and Spain on her right, within ten miles of the eastern end of Crete. The approximate hour was fixed at 23 Eastern Time. At this point, she was to show her night signal, a scarlet line on a white field, and in the event of her failing to observe her neighbors was to circle at that point, at a height of 800 feet, until either the two were sighted or further instructions were received. For the purpose of dealing with emergencies, the President's car, which would finally make its entrance from the south, was to be accompanied by an aide-de-camp capable of moving at a very high speed, whose signals were to be taken as Felsenberg's own. So soon as the circle was completed, having Esdralon as its center with a radius of 540 miles, the Volors were to advance, dropping gradually to within 500 feet of sea level, and diminishing their distance one from another from the twenty-five miles or so at which they would first find themselves, until they were as near as safety allowed. In this manner, the advance at a pace of fifty miles an hour from the moment that the circle was arranged would bring them within sight of Nazareth at about nine o'clock on the Sunday morning. The guard came up to the fore as they stood there, silent. "'We are ready, gentlemen,' he said. "'What do you think of the weather?' asked Snowford abruptly. The guard pursed his lips. "'A little thunder, I expect, sir,' he said." Oliver looked at him curiously. "'No more than that?' he asked. "'I should say a storm, sir,' observed the guard shortly. Snowford turned towards the gangway. "'Well, we had best be off. We can lose time further on if we wish.' It was about five minutes more before all was ready. From the stern of the boat came a faint smell of cooking, for breakfast would be served immediately, and a white-capped cook protruded his head for an instant to question the guard. The four sat down in the gorgeous saloon in the bows. "'Oliver, silent by himself, the other three talking in low voices together. "'Once more the guard passed through to his compartment at the prow, "'glancing as he went to see that all were seated. "'And an instant later came the clang of the signal. "'Then through all the length of the boat, "'for she was the fastest ship that England possessed, "'passed the thrill of the propeller beginning to work up speed, "'and simultaneously Oliver, staring sideways through the plate-glass window, "'saw the rail drop away, and the long line of London, "'pale beneath the tinged sky, surge up suddenly.' He caught a glimpse of a little group of persons staring up from below, and they, too, dropped in a great swirl and vanished. Then, with a flash of dusty green, the common had vanished, and a pavement of house roofs began to stream beneath, the long lines of streets on this side and that turning like spokes of a giant wheel. Once more this pavement thinned, showing green again as between infrequently laid cobblestones. Then they, too, were gone, and the country was open beneath. Snowford rose, staggering a little. "'I may as well tell the guard now,' he said, "'that we need not be interrupted again.' Chapter 6 The Syrian awoke from a dream that a myriad faces were looking into his own, eager, attentive, and horrible, in his corner of the rooftop, and sat up sweating and gasping aloud for breath. For an instant he thought that he was really dying, and that the spiritual world was about him. Then, as he struggled, sense came back, and he stood up, drawing long breaths of the stifling night air. Above him the sky was as the pit, black and empty, There was not a glimmer of light, though the moon was surely up. He had seen her four hours before, a red sickle, swing slowly out from Tabor. Across the plain, as he looked from the parapet, there was nothing. For a few yards, there lay across the broken ground a single crooked lance of light from a half closed shutter, and beneath that, nothing. To the north again, nothing. To the west, a glimmer, pale as a moth's wing, from the house roofs of Nazareth. To the east, nothing. He might be on a tower top in space. "'except for that line of light and that grey glimmer that evaded the eye. "'On the roof, however, it was possible to make out at least outlines, "'for the dormer trap had been left open at the head of the stairs, "'and from somewhere within the depths of the house "'there stole up a faint refracted light. "'There was a white bundle in that corner. "'That would be the pillow of the Benedictine abbot. "'He had seen him lay himself down there some time. "'Was it four hours or four centuries ago? "'There was a grey shape stretched along that pale wall. "'The friar,' he thought. There were other irregular outlines breaking the face of the parapet, here and there along the sides. Very softly, for he knew the caprices of sleep, he stepped across the paved roof to the opposite parapet and looked over, for there yet hung about him a desire for reassurance that he was still in company with flesh and blood. Yes, indeed, he was still on earth, for there was a real and distinct light burning among the tumbled rocks, and beside it, delicate as a miniature, the head and shoulders of a man, writing... And in the circle of light were other figures, pale, broken patches on which men lay, a pole or two erected with the thought of a tent to follow, a little pile of luggage with a rug across it, and beyond the circle other outlines and shapes faded away into the stupendous blackness. Then the writing man moved his head, and a monstrous shadow fled across the ground. A yelp as of a strangling dog broke out suddenly close behind him, and as he turned, a moaning figure sat up on the roof, sobbing itself awake. Another moved at the sound, and then, as, sighing, the former relapsed heavily against the wall, once more the priest went back to his place, still doubtful as to the reality of all that he saw, and the breathless silence came down again as a pall. He woke again from dreamless sleep, and there was a change. From his corner, as he raised his heavy eyes, there met them what seemed an unbearable brightness. Then, as he looked, it resolved itself into a candle flame, and beyond it a white sleeve, and higher yet a white face and throat. He understood and rose reeling. It was the messenger come to fetch him as had been arranged. As he passed across the space, once he looked round him and it seemed that the dawn must have come, for that appalling sky overhead was visible at last. An enormous vault, smoke-colored and opaque, seemed to curve away to the ghostly horizons on either side where the far-away hills raised sharp shapes as if cut in paper. Carmel was before him, at least he thought it was that, a bull head and shoulders thrusting itself forward and ending in an abrupt descent and beyond that again the glimmering sky. There were no clouds, no outlines to break the huge, smooth, dusky dome beneath the center of which this house roof seemed poised. Across the parapet, as he glanced to the right before descending the steps, stretched Esdralon, sad-colored and somber, into the metallic distance. It was all as unreal as some fantastic picture by one who had never looked upon clear sunlight. The silence was complete and profound. Straight down through the wheeling shadows he went, following the white hooded head and figure down the stairs, Along the tiny passage, stumbling once against the feet of one who slept with limbs tossed loose like a tired dog, the feet drew back mechanically, and a little moan broke from the shadows. Then he went on, passing the servant who stood aside, and entered. There were half a dozen men gathered here, silent, white figures, standing apart one from the other, who genuflected as the Pope came in simultaneously through the opposite door, and again stood white-faced and attentive. He ran his eyes over them as he stopped, waiting behind his master's chair, There were two, he knew, remembering them from last night, dark-faced Cardinal Ruspoli and the lean Australian Archbishop, besides Cardinal Corcoran, who stood by his chair at the Pope's own table, with papers laid ready. Sylvester sat down and, with a little gesture, caused the others to sit too. Then he began at once in that quiet, tired voice that his servant knew so well. Eminencies, we are all here, I think. We need lose no more time, then. Cardinal Corcoran has something to communicate. He turned a little. Father, sit down, if you please. This will occupy a little while. The priest went across to the stone window seat, whence he could watch the Pope's face in the light of the two candles that now stood on the table between him and the cardinal secretary. Then the Cardinal began, glancing up from his papers. Holiness, I had better begin a little way back. Their eminencies have not heard the details properly. I received at Damascus on last Friday inquiries from various prelates in different parts of the world as to the actual measure concerning the new policy of persecution. At first I could tell them nothing positively, for it was not until after twenty o'clock that Cardinal Ruspoli in Turin informed me of the facts. Cardinal Malpas confirmed them a few minutes later, and the Cardinal Archbishop of Pekin at twenty-three. Before midday on Saturday, I received final confirmation from my messengers in London. I was at first surprised that Cardinal Dogorovsky did not communicate it, for almost simultaneously with the Turin message, I received one from a priest of the Order of Christ crucified in Moscow, to which, of course, I paid no attention. It is our rule, eminencies, to treat unauthorized communications in that way. His Holiness, however, bade me make inquiries, and I learned from Father Petrovsky and others that the government placards published the news at twenty o'clock by our time. It was curious, therefore, that the Cardinal had not seen it. If he had seen it, it was, of course, his duty to acquaint me immediately. Since that time, however, the following facts have come out. It is established beyond a doubt that Cardinal Dogorovsky received a visitor in the course of the evening. His own chaplain, who, your eminencies are perhaps aware, has been very active in Russia on behalf of the Church, informs me of this privately. Yet the Cardinal asserts, in explanation of his silence, that he was alone during those hours, and had given orders that no one was to be admitted to his presence without urgent cause. This, of course, confirmed His Holiness's opinion, but I received orders from him to act as if nothing had happened, and to command the Cardinal's presence here with the rest of the Sacred College. To this I received an intimation that he would be present. Yesterday, however, a little before midday, I received a further message that his eminency had met with a slight accident, but that he had yet hoped to present himself in time for the deliberations. Since then, no further news has arrived. There was a dead silence. Then the Pope turned to the Syrian priest. Father, he said, it was you who received his eminency's messages. Have you anything to add to this? No holiness. He turned again. My son, he said, report to us publicly what you have already reported to us in private. A small, bright-eyed man moved out of the shadows, Holiness, it was I who conveyed the message to Cardinal Dolgorovsky. He refused at first to receive me. When I reached his presence and communicated the command, he was silent. Then he smiled. Then he told me to carry back the message that he would obey. Again the Pope was silent. Then suddenly the tall Australian stood up. Holiness, he said. I was once intimate with that man. It was partly through my means that he sought reception into the Catholic Church. This was not less than fourteen years ago, when the fortunes of the Church seemed about to prosper. Our friendly relation ceased two years ago, and I may say that, from what I know of him, I find no difficulty in believing. As his voice shook with passion and he faltered, Sylvester raised his hand. We desire no recriminations. Even the evidence is now useless, for what was to be done has been done. For ourselves we have no doubt as to its nature. It was to this man that Christ gave the morsel through our hands, saying, Quod facis facitius, cum ergo pisatile le bucellam, exhibit continuo, erat autem nox. Again fell the silence, and in the pause sounded a long half-vocal sigh from without the door. It came and went as a sleeper turned, for the passage was crowded with exhausted men, as a soul might sigh that passed from light to darkness. Then Sylvester spoke again, and as he spoke he began, as if mechanically, to tear up a long paper, written with lists of names that lay before him. Eminencies, it is three hours after dawn. In two hours more we shall say Mass in your presence, and give Holy Communion. During those two hours we commission you to communicate this news to all who are assembled here, and further we bestow on each and all of you jurisdiction apart from all previous rules of time and place. We give a plenary indulgence to all who confess and communicate this day. Father, he turned to the Syrian, Father, you will now expose the blessed sacrament in the chapel, after which you will proceed to the village and inform the inhabitants that, if they wish to save their lives, they had best be gone immediately. Immediately, you understand. The Syrian started from his days. Holiness, he stammered, stretching out a hand. The lists! The lists! He had seen what these were. But Sylvester only smiled as he tossed the fragments onto the table. Then he stood up. You need not trouble, my son. We shall not need these any more. One last word, eminences. If there is one heart here that doubts or is afraid, I have a word to say. He paused, and with an extraordinarily simple deliberateness, ran his eyes round the tense faces turned to him. I have had a vision of God, he said softly. I walk no more by faith, but by sight. An hour later, the priest toiled back in the hot twilight up the path from the village, followed by half a dozen silent men, twenty yards behind, whose curiosity exceeded their credulousness. He had left a few more standing bewildered at the doors of the little mud houses and had seen perhaps a hundred families, waded with domestic articles, pour like a stream down the rocky path that led to Kaifa. He had been cursed by some, even threatened, stared upon by others, mocked by a few, The fanatical said that the Christians had brought God's wrath upon the place and the darkness upon the sky. The sun was dying, for these hounds were too evil for him to look upon and live. Others again seemed to see nothing remarkable in the state of the weather. There was no change in that sky from its state an hour before, except that perhaps it had lightened a little as the sun climbed higher behind that impenetrable dusky shroud. Hills, grass, men's faces, all bore to the priest's eyes the look of unreality, They were as things seen in a dream by eyes that roll with sleep through lids weighted with lead. Even to other physical senses that unreality was present. And once more he remembered his dream, thankful that that horror at least was absent. But silence seemed other than a negation of sound. It was a thing in itself, an affirmation, unruffled by the sound of footsteps, the thin barking of dogs, the murmur of voices. It appeared as if the stillness of eternity had descended and embraced the world's activities, and as if that world, in a desperate attempt to assert its own reality, was braced in a set, motionless, noiseless, breathless effort to hold itself in being. What Sylvester had said just now was beginning to be true of this man also. The touch of the powdery soil and the warm pebbles beneath the priest's bare feet seemed something apart from the consciousness that usually regards the things of sense as more real and more intimate than the things of spirit. Matter still had a reality, still occupied space, but it was of a subjective nature the result of internal rather than external powers. He appeared to himself already to be scarcely more than a soul, intent and steady, united by a thread only to the body and the world with which he was yet in relations. He knew that the appalling heat was there. Once even, before his eyes, a patch of beaten ground cracked and lisped as water that touches hot iron as he trod upon it. He could feel the heat upon his forehead and hands. His whole body was swathed and soaked in it, yet he regarded it as from an outside standpoint as a man with neuritis perceives that the pain is no longer in his hand but in the pillow which supports it. So too with what his eyes looked upon and his ears heard. So too with that faint bitter taste that lay upon his lips and nostrils. There was no longer in him fear or even hope. He regarded himself, the world, and even the enshrouding and awful presence of spirit as facts with which he had but little to do. He was scarcely even interested. Still less was he distressed. There was Tabor before him, at least what once had been Tabor, now it was no more than a huge and dusky dome shape, which impressed itself upon his retina and informed his passive brain of its existence and outline, though that existence seemed no better than that of a dissolving phantom. It seemed then almost natural, or at least as natural as all else, as he came in through the passage and opened the chapel door, to see that the floor was crowded with prostrate motionless figures. There they lay, all alike in the white burnous which he had given out last night, and, with forehead on arms, as during the singing of the Litany of the Saints at an ordination, lay the figure he knew best and loved more than all the world, the shoulders and white hair at a slight elevation upon the single altar step. Above the plain altar itself burned the six tall candles, and in the midst, on the mean little throne, stood the white metal monstrance with its white center. Then he, too, dropped and lay as he was. He did not know how long it was before the circling observant consciousness, the flow of slow images, vibration of particular thoughts ceased and stilled as a pool rocks quietly to peace after the dropped stone has long lain still. But it came at last, that superb tranquility, possible only when the senses are physically awake, with which God, perhaps once in a lifetime, rewards the aspiring trustful soul. That point of complete rest in the heart of the fount of all existence, with which one day he will reward eternally the spirits of his children. There was no thought in him of articulating this experience, of analyzing its elements, or fingering this or that strain of ecstatic joy. The time for self-regarding was past. It was enough that the experience was there, although he was not even self-reflective enough to tell himself so. He had passed from that circle whence the soul looks within, from that circle too whence it looks upon objective glory, to that very center where it reposes, and the first sign to him that time had passed was the murmur of words, heard distinctly and understood, although with that apartness with which a drowsy man perceives a message from without, heard as through a veil through which nothing but thinnest essence could transpire. Spiritus Domini Replevit Orbum Terrarum. The Spirit of the Lord has fulfilled all things. Alleluia. And that which contains all things hath knowledge of the voice. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Exur Gad Deus. And the voice rose ever so slightly. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, and let them who hate him flee before his face. Gloria Patri. Then he raised his heavy head, and a phantom figure stood there in red vestments, seeming to float rather than to stand, with thin hands outstretched, and white cap on white hair seen in the gleam of the steady candle flames. Another also, in white, kneeled on the step. Kyrie eleison. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Those things passed like a shadow show, with movements and rustlings, but he perceived rather the light which cast them, He heard Deus qui in odierna die, but his passive mind gave no pulse of reflex action, no stir of understanding until these words, Cum complarentor dies Pentecostes. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, all the disciples were with one accord in the same place, and there came from heaven suddenly a sound, as of a mighty wind approaching, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then he remembered and understood. It was Pentecost then. And with memory a shred of reflection came back, Where then was the wind, and the flame, and the earthquake, and the secret voice? Yet the world was silent, rigid in its last effort at self-assertion. There was no tremor to show that God remembered. No actual point of light yet, breaking the appalling vault of gloom that lay over the sea and land to reveal that he burned there in eternity, transcendent and dominant. Not even a voice. And at that he understood yet more. He perceived that that world, whose monstrous parody his sleep had presented to him in the night, was other than that he had feared it to be. It was sweet, not terrible, friendly, not hostile, clear, not stifling, and home, not exile. There were presences here, but not those gluttonous, lustful things that had looked on him last night. He dropped his head again upon his hands, at once ashamed and content, and again he sank down to depths of glimmering inner peace. Not again for a while did he perceive what he did or thought, or what passed there five yards away on the low step. Once only a ripple passed across that sea of glass— a ripple of fire and sound like a rising star that flicks a line of light across a sleeping lake, like a thin thread of vibration streaming from a quivering string across the stillness of a deep night. And he perceived for an instant as in a formless mirror that a lower nature was struck into existence and into union with the divine nature at the same moment. And then no more again but the great encompassing hush, the sense of the innermost heart of reality, till he found himself kneeling at the rail and knew that that which alone truly existed on earth approached him with the swiftness of thought and the ardor of divine love. Then, as the Mass ended, and he raised his passive happy soul to receive the last gift of God, there was a cry, a sudden clamor in the passage, and a man stood in the doorway, gabbling Arabic. Yet even at that sound and sight, his soul scarcely tightened the languid threads that united it through every fiber of his body with the world of sense. He saw and heard the tumult in the passage, frantic eyes and mouths crying aloud, and, in strange contrast, the pale, ecstatic faces of those princes who turned and looked. Even within the tranquil presence chamber of the spirit where two beings, incarnate God and all but discarnate man, were locked in embrace, a certain mental process went on, yet all was still as apart from him as a lighted stage and its drama from a self-contained spectator. In the material world, now as attenuated as a mirage, events were at hand. But to his soul, balanced now on reality and awake to facts, these things were but a spectacle." He turned to the altar again, and there, as he had known it would be, in the midst of clear light, all was at peace. The celebrant, seen as through molten glass, adored as he murmured the mystery of the word made flesh, and once more passing to the center, sank upon his knees. Again the priest understood, for thought was no longer the process of a mind, rather was the glance of a spirit. He knew all now, and by an inevitable impulse, his throat began to sing aloud words that, as he sang, opened for the first time as flowers, telling their secret to the sun. They were all singing now. Even the Mohammedan catechumen, who had burst in a moment ago, sang with the rest, his lean head thrust out and his arms tied across his breast. The tiny chapel rang with the voices, and the vast world thrilled to hear it. Still singing, the priest saw the veil laid as by a phantom upon the pontiff's shoulders. There was a movement, a surge of figures, shadows only in the midst of substance. And the pope stood erect, himself a pallor in the heart of light, with spectral folds of silk dripping from his shoulders, and his down-bent head hidden by the silver rayed monstrance and that which it bore. They were moving now, And the world of life swung with them. Of so much was he aware. He was out in the passage among the white, frenzied faces, that with bared teeth stared up at that sight, silenced at last by the thunder of Pange Lingua and the radiance of those who passed out to eternal life. At the corner he turned for an instant to see the six pale flames move along a dozen yards behind, as spearheads about a king, and in the midst the silver rays and the white heart of God. Then he was out, and the battle lay in array. That sky on which he had looked an hour ago had passed from darkness charged with light to light overlaid with darkness, from glimmering night to wrathful day, and that light was red. From behind Tabor on the left to Carmel on the far right, above the hills twenty miles away, rested an enormous vault of color. Here were no gradations from zenith to horizon. All was the one deep smolder of crimson as of the glow of iron. It was such a color as men have seen at sunsets after rain, while the clouds, more translucent each instant, transmit the glory they cannot contain. Here, too, was the sun, pale as the host, set like a fragile wafer above the mount of transfiguration. And there, far down in the west, where men had once cried upon Baal and Vain, hung the sickle of the white moon. Yet all was no more than stained light that lies broken across carven work of stone, He saw, too, poised as motes in light, that ring of strange fish-creatures white as milk, except where the angry glory turned their backs to flame, white-winged like floating moths, from the tiny shape far to the south, to the monster at hand scarcely five hundred yards away. And even as he looked, singing as he looked, he understood that the circle was nearer, and perceived that these as yet knew nothing. They were nearer still. Until now, even at his feet, there slid along the ground a shadow of a monstrous bird, pale and undefined, as between the wan sun and himself moved out the vast shape that a moment ago hung above the hill. Then again it backed across and waited. He had halted and turned, going in the midst of his fellows, hearing, he thought, the thrill of harping and the throb of heavenly drums, and across the space moved now the six flames, steady as if cut of steel in that stupendous poise of heaven and earth. And in their center the silver-rayed glory and the whiteness of God made man. Then with a roar came the thunder again, peeling in circle beyond circle of those tremendous presences, thrones and powers, who themselves to the world as substance to shadow are but shadows again beneath the apex and within the ring of absolute deity. The thunder broke loose, shaking the earth that now cringed on the quivering edge of dissolution. Ah, yes, it was he for whom God waited now, he who far up beneath, that trembling shadow of a dome, itself but the piteous core of unimagined splendor, came in his swift chariot blind to all save that on which he had fixed his eyes so long. Unaware that his world corrupted about him, his shadow moving like a pale cloud across the ghostly plain where Israel had fought and Sennacherib boasted. That plain lighted now with a yet deeper glow, as heaven, kindling to glory beyond glory of yet fiercer spiritual flame, still restrained the power knit at last to the relief of final revelation, and for the last time the voices sang... He was coming now, swifter than ever, the heir of temporal ages and the exile of eternity, the final piteous prince of rebels, the creature against God, blinder than the sun which paled and the earth that shook. And as he came, passing even then through the last material stage, to the thinness of a spirit fabric, the floating circle swirled behind him, tossing like phantom birds in the wake of a phantom ship. He was coming, and the earth rent once again in its allegiance, shrank and reeled in the agony of divided homage. He was coming, and already the shadow swept off the plain and vanished, and the pale-netted wings were rising to the check, and the great bell clanged, and the long sweet chord rang out, not more than whispers heard across the pealing storm of everlasting praise. Then this world passed, and the glory of it.